Howdy. Thanks for listening to Let the Movie Speak. Before we get started, uh, we'd like to ask a favor of you. It's a simple favor. If you could just rate and review our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you listen, that might help other ears get into our ecosystem here and hear another episode. Anyway, enjoy the show. This is the story you've heard about, talked about, the spine-tingling, blood-chilling story that stuns your emotions. Frankenstein. Don't touch that! In 1910, Thomas Edison's production company brings Mary Shelley's revered novel Frankenstein to life in a silent film. Ten years later, an Italian version is censored so heavily that its inevitable box office failure leads to the film eventually being lost. Another ten years would pass before Universal Studios introduced American audiences to the now quintessential version of Frankenstein's monster. Welcome back, everybody, to Let the Movie Speak. My name is Travis. And I'm Justin. And we're super excited to be back uh, with another episode looking at another film uh, from our first series here from the 1930s. Um, we already touched on a film from 1931, and then we're kind of we're going back there for, for today's Circling episode. Circling the wagons. Circling them up. And this is for uh, one of the original... Uh, Universal Monster flicks Frankenstein, and I think it's going to be a good conversation. What do you think, Justin? Yeah, I'm excited. A little different, I think, than what you and I both expected going in. Um, but uh, yeah, I think we we will have no shortage of things to talk about. Yeah, agreed. Um, before we get into Frankenstein, uh, as as we are mm-hmm. going to do every week, we want to just give you a little window into our watching tastes and some uh, things we've been. Uh, taking in, and that's in a section we call uh, What Did We Watch This Week? So, Justin, what did you watch this week? Uh, me and uh, Mrs. Justin watched... Um, <laughs> that's what I always Jojo- call her. Right, yeah, uh, most people do. Um, it's on the certificate nice. of life. And, uh, yeah, we watched uh, Jojo Rabbit, yes. Taika Waititi's uh, 2019, right? Not 18? Yes, that's correct. Okay. 2019 film about uh, a young boy in the Hitler youth whose imaginary friend is Hitler, played by <laughs> Taika, yes. uh, and him coming to uh, terms with his mother hiding a Jewish girl in the attic. Yeah. Um, and and my goodness, I was uh, I know that you had told me you had seen this movie and you recommended it to me, but um, and and when you do, you don't recommend movies lightly usually. So. Um, I, I knew that it was probably going to be good, but um, I was really surprised by how good it is. Um, I mean, first of all, what a, what a tough concept to try to sell. Jeez, yeah. uh, H- Hitler as as funny, you know? Yes. Um, uh, and, and, of course, it's not real Hitler. He's not Taika Waititi. I mean, I, I've heard that he has Russian-Jewish ancestry, so it's not like he comes from this, uh, you know, uh, insensitive, Eurocentric, whatever you want to call it, kind of worldview that could be disastrous, right. um, you know, and, and very insensitive and just wrong. But he, he really is able to capture Hitler as if, you know, th- it is the Hitler that lives in this little boy's brain yeah. who has been raised and brainwashed to believe, you know, the Third Reich is the savior of the world. And um, uh, man, I, I, I don't have really many bad things to say about it. 
um, and and by not many, I mean none. Um, it, the the it's a powerful story. It's very um, while it is very comedic in in a lot of its turns, it's comedic. I, I think it succeeds because so much of that comedy seems to stem from the child's perspective or the other kids in the film. Yeah. So it's not like... Like, there is some kind of goofy stuff that happens with other adults, too. Like when uh, our friend uh, uh, Stephen Merchant yes. comes in as the oh Gestapo. Oh, my gosh. He's so good. <laughs> I mean, you know, so some of that stuff is just... It's just good writing and good comedy. But I, I feel like we especially get away with the Hitler um thing because it really is genuinely you believe that it is this kid's idealized version of Hitler and uh and I really loved I don't know what kind of specifics you loved about this movie I really appreciated how Hitler makes this progression throughout the movie where he starts off and it's in his appearance it's in the way he talks it's in his uh it's in his dress even his wardrobe yep. You know, it's the Hitler. You're watching Hitler evolve from like when the Nazi party started until those final days in the bunker. And to watch Taika do this kind of, he's a very comedic guy. And, and I read that he uh, didn't even want to do this movie. Um, he, he wanted to tell a story like this, but he felt like he was not capable of presenting a, a, a straight drama. So yeah. he had to write a comedy. Mm-hmm. And I, I find that fascinating from a guy that's able to do campy, funny, silly Hitler. And then in in like the third act, he gives that speech to the kid, yeah. which I'm pretty sure is just a translated version of a real Hitler speech. Mm-hmm. And he does it with the Hitler gestures. And I mean, it's incredible. It's really frightening to it's watch. It's good. It's not just like, yeah, it's not just some caricature thing. He really does. He does hit like real Hitler at, at times just enough to keep the whole thing at arm's length, right? Like yes. he has so much fun like playing in the playground of, okay, this is a 10-year-old's version of Hitler and he's preposterous and silly, but but the threat that is so real is always there like as an anchor. And uh, right. yeah, I, I saw that in theaters and didn't expect to like love it. Just thought like, oh, this mm-hmm. is Taika Waititi. Um, generally like what he's done so far and the yeah. concept is cool. Um, but I just remember, yeah, it crushed me. Like, uh, mm. and I, you know, having no expectations is sometimes the best way to go into a yeah. movie. Uh, we can talk about that in regards to Frankenstein, but the, <laughs> the, uh, the things that I liked the most about Jojo rabbit, the kids are all great. It's hard to get kids that are that good. That's number yeah. one. Um, but the supporting cast is epic. Like yeah. Scarlett Johansson is incredible in this movie. And I've yeah. always been kind of on the fence about her. Like, is she even good or is she just, you know, a face that, you know, gets thrown into, you know, action movies or, you know, the Marvel right. stuff because she's kind of, she brings money. But man, if there's any doubt about that in the past right. year, right? Like watch Marriage Story and then watch yeah. this. Like <laughs> right. she's legit. She has chops. She can do a lot of different stuff. Um She's great. Sam Rockwell, Rebel Wilson, mm-hmm. Stephen Mer- like the the supporting cast of comedic characters is utilized so well. Like Rebel Wilson's one of those supporting comedic actors who I find, you know, 50% of the time hilarious and 50% of the time obnoxious because yeah. it's always the same joke, but uh right. it's perfectly placed here and yeah, the dramatic heft that is wielded alongside the screwball comedy like aesthetics mm-hmm. is like you don't, you, I don't know. Remember, the, I don't even remember when the last time I I've seen that is. It's it it sort of feels like a Wes Anderson movie with more feeling, like with Humanity. more emotional yeah. depth. Yeah, 
Yeah, and and to its credit, it ends it ends well, not just in terms of a comedy. I mean, that ending is is an ending for movies in general, um, with with the two kids dancing at the end to to, uh, <laughs> to David Bowie's Heroes. Yeah, to um, a German version, right? Yes. yes. Yeah. Exactly. So and interesting. Yeah. yeah. The, um, I mean, that song is. I I think maybe we've you and I have talked about not on the podcast, but privately about how overused that song has sadly become in cinema. Yeah. But I think Taika earns the right to put it in there, and it's it's very appropriate in in keeping with the tone of the movie. But it's the flight yeah, of the, the bumblebee of like uh you know eighties stuff. Like yeah. it's just yeah. ev- it's ubiquitous, and it it loses meaning when you use it and use it and use it. And this is like, yes. yep, that's that's exactly right. <laughs> Yeah, really, yeah. really. Yeah, I, I would recommend everybody see Jojo Rabbit because I don't know who wouldn't like it. I mean, like it's funny. Uh, it, the story is really moving. Um, historically, like I just don't see that kind of quirky and yet super thoughtful look at that period of history. Uh, so yeah. really, I, I don't know. Again, I don't know what else to say about it that's negative. I think well, I like. Every- you know, I I think kind of fundamentally what I find so special about that movie is it works because the kid is a human and therefore relatable and and the other characters are are human too. So yes, are are there Nazis that are bad in this movie? Of course there are. Okay, we're talking about Nazis. But then there's the Sam Rockwell character. He he is more concerned with being human yeah. through his course of the movie than with being a Nazi. And I think that is um it you know, we don't want to we don't want to excuse anything in history. We don't want to rewrite history. We don't want to do any of that. But I think if you're going to look at any era of history, of any tragedy, of any war, um, you're going to always find conflicted, complex, gray areas on both sides. Um, so you're going to find conflicted uh, characters like like Sam Rockwell. And so I I just I found it refreshing because it's a very it it works I think uh, ultimately because it's it's more concerned with answering these kind of human questions. Yeah. Um, how do we negotiate? How do we, how do we get along with each other? That's yeah. That's kind of the movie's big question to me. Agreed. Um, uh, strong recommend for Jojo rabbit for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, what'd you watch this week? Uh, so I finished off the, uh, the HBO series, the vow, which is a documentary okay. series on the Nexium cult. Um, and yeah. like with most series of, of that nature, uh, it's incredibly uh, bleak at times, but yeah. also I feel like really enlightening for folks who just with any ideology, right, like go go into things blindly and without objectivity. And it, it, you know what it answered for me, which is I think really important, is this idea of like people who get caught up in something that in the end is so insane when we look back on it, we always assume like, okay, well, these are impressionable weak people mm-hmm. that's not true like the yeah. the programming and the essentially brainwashing that takes place with these people in power who have influence over other people this can happen to your next door neighbor this can happen to someone in your family because we are uh you know broken all of us right like we have mm-hmm. a brokenness that needs fixing and the places we look and the people who offer solutions are so uh, they, they have they have an opportunity to come in and, and offer right. solutions that you know end up being sinister. So really compelling, uh, and I feel like uh, on an, on another note, subject matter that is really heavy, um, but handled 
with so much aplomb. Like you, you can watch this and, and think like, wow, that's a terrible thing that happened to that person, but you never feel like it's exploitative or, hmm. um, yeah. you know, like overly uh, like wallowing in the, the most graphic things be, because it can to be shocking. It's really thoughtful hmm. and, uh, and it has a good ending, which is nice. Some of these, you know, like true crime or uh, documentary yeah. series about they just have like the ending is like, and the man got away and was never caught, and you don't have to deal with that at the end of this one. It's it's pretty satisfying. So hmm. yeah, I would recommend the vow. Uh, it's on HBO Max. Um, that's if you if you're into that sort of thing. It's pretty much it for me. Is that pretty much it for you? It's pretty much it. Okay. Well, I think it's time to meet the monster. What do you think? I'm ready to open the door and let him in. Let's do it. So 1931's Frankenstein. Uh, we have basically a blockbuster, big budget movie we're tackling and um, directed by James Whale. Uh, obviously, it was uh, Mary Shelley's uh, famous novel from 1818. It then became a play in 1927, which this script was adapted from. So that play script became the adaptation material for the movie script. And it stars, among others, Colin Clive as Victor Frankenstein, Boris Karloff as the monster. Um, And yeah, what would you say uh, as far as just giving people an idea of what kind of movie this is? And also, what was your experience with it before, before this week? So this is one of the first movies I remember watching as a kid. I think it was around Halloween time, um, and I was probably about six or something, and my folks rented a, a tape of this and uh, and put it on, and uh, I remember a couple key scenes from this movie, really just from the end, and um, <laughs> and I wept. I wept at the end, Travis, I have to confess. Um that's felt really inju- disappointing. In injustice had been done to Mister Mister Frankenstein's monster. Yes, but um, the and, and until uh, we watched it for this podcast again, I hadn't seen it, so it had been quite uh, quite a long time um, oh. since I'd seen it. Um, have you ever seen this movie before? So I feel like I have. Again, it's I feel like it's got to be like on AMC in October, right. like sure every year. So I used to. Yeah. You know, I'm. I think more so than you, a pretty big purveyor of the genre of the horror genre. Yes. One of my favorites, if not my favorite. So I'm sure I have seen this movie, but not necessarily sat down with the intention to watch it, just sort of flicking through. This is the first time I watch it, watched it intentionally. And, and, and at an age where I could, you know, make sense of the whole story, not just sequences, which I think is going to be a common theme here. This yeah. movie is a movie that's remembered for sequences. I don't think that it's regarded as like, you know, Citizen Kane or something like, you know. Hopefully not. Yeah, yeah I do. I, I also hope not. And I think that's a good hint at our feelings about the movie. Um, I went into it this time with, uh, I would say like, I, I, I knew what it was going to be, you know. I knew that it wasn't... Uh, for for instance, uh, on a previous episode, we discussed Fritz Lang's M, which is very you know ambitious and subversive and just really deep, uh, for lack of a better term. This is not any of those things, um, and <laughs> right. it was even less so than I expected um, mm-hmm. because 
Uh, one thing uh, that I kept noticing scene after scene is that this is a this is a production value movie, right? Like all the money and the time and the effort is in the set building. It's in the costuming, yes. um, the lighting and all those things for a film of this era. It, it looks great, you know, like for what it is, they achieved the look they were going for. I don't think there's any mistakes in that department. But uh, as far as like taking a big bite of philosophical meaning or you know whatever you got to work at it a little you know Mm -hmm. yeah i i agree and this movie doesn't really other than selling tickets which is an important job that any movie has to do uh, especially from a big studio um it i don't feel like it has a mission and it doesn't really know what it's trying to accomplish um and you mentioned this was adapted from a from a play and you know I I feel like this movie comes off as half play half movie um in some of the kind of bizarre staging choices and in even some of the dialogue yeah um and things did you get that that feeling at all watching this yeah i think to some degree everything from the 30s other than maybe something like again the aforementioned m which is just like it 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 just it floats above, you know, the regular right. riffraff. Um, this is like high budget riffraff, but it's a popcorn movie. It's, 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 if you were to equate it to something nowadays, it's, I don't know, it's like a Transformers movie almost, you know, like yeah. that level of, sure, there's some thought given to some character meaning and some depth, but, but a lot of it, I think, in the 30s is like what they knew was theater and then silent films pretty briefly, you know, silent films. Right. 20 years 25 years maybe 30 years for some folks but mostly people went kind of from a familiarity with theater to this so i think there's a sensibility right about acting and staging and blocking and a lot of that stuff where you can see the seams uh between theater Mm -hmm. and and a film like this for sure yeah well and i found it really interesting I, i i assume this is on every version that we can now um access when we when we rent or buy the movie um, you know, before the, the title credits even roll, you have this guy come out on stage as if you are in a theater yeah. and give you... And he comes from an, he comes from a curtain. He comes between the... Right. A curtain. And and he essentially gives you 1931's version of clickbait. Yes. Um, you know, and so to, to to liken that to Transformers, I think, is very accurate. Um, he, he There's no <laughs> there's no trailer reveal. Um, so he, he gives you this half-hearted, like... Oh, this might be kind of scary. I don't know if you want to watch this, right. but yes, you do. You know, and that's even in the in the credits. I don't know if you noticed in the title credits, the monster is played by a question mark, mm-hmm. um, as if that's going to be the bit who who plays him. Right. And, and thankfully, they answer that question at the end because um, I was biting my nails wondering. The oh whole my time. gosh, who the heck was it? Uh, um, yeah, I I'm still not sure. Yeah, I'm learning to read. <laughs> There's it, still but, debate. There is an interesting um, point about uh, casting uh, that maybe goes in this mm-hmm. little intro section where in the same year, uh, Dracula starring Bela Lugosi, which yeah. if, you, if you're not familiar uh, you know, with the history of the horror genre, the universal monsters from this era are what started to build like what does horror look like from American cinema. Um, so you have you know, you Dracula, you have the Wolfman, you have Frankenstein. Uh, the Invisible Man, all of these Universal Monster characters became tentpole, big budget, and profitable movies. Bela Lugosi starred in Dracula in the same year. They released both these movies in 1931. It made 
tons of money for the, the time and place. And uh, therefore, Frankenstein kind of got fast-tracked. Bela Lugosi was supposed to star as Frankenstein's monster. But oh, uh, wow. after some makeup tests and some very upset sentiments from Mr. Lugosi, who I think I read a quote somewhere where he said, like, I am an esteemed actor and I don't want to be playing, you know, what is essentially a mindless zombie. Uh, hmm. Mr. Boris Karloff was was found and selected. But, um, but yeah, I think... Um, that really sets the the stage for what we should expect when we watch a movie like this. I think what I'm going to keep keep coming back to, and I think you'll agree with this, Justin, is this is a more important movie to cinema than it is a good movie to watch. Um, Agreed. Yeah. So, um, let's see. I don't think I'm missing anything for intro. I think that's pretty much it. We were both about the same amount of familiar with it, and then uh, we, we saw what we saw, and I think it's... <laughs> Probably about time to get into what we saw. What do you think? I'm ready. Let's do it. So what's it saying? This is, you know, we're talking about some plot stuff, the overall feel of it, acting story. And I mean, in general, I think we've already sort of revealed our hand here. Nothing here blew me away. There's a few, I think, things to highlight. But we have Mm -hmm. a story that centers around a pretty small cast um, and I think this movie is designed to be spectacle and not much else. I didn't expect to come in tr- uh, comparing it to Transformers, but I don't think that was a bad reference, actually, now that I keep thinking about it. Um, early on, um, I, 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 I noted that the production value is really obvious, right? Like for a movie from this era, just the map paintings and set design and the grandness yeah. of all of it is is pretty obvious. Nothing has ever looked more like a soundstage than the gra- right. the graveyard yeah. scene. Oh my goodness! Um, but I, I enjoy I, when when one of the the actors, you know, he so obviously is being directed like, okay, now you're gonna walk over the last mound. And then you can't keep walking straight because you'll walk into the painting. Yes. So you have to make a hard left. Hard left. And so you see everyone make that hard left like inches from the painting. Yes, yes. Um, yeah. It's, it's a little humorous. So me. that's like uh, absolutely uh, you can see that in, in some of the, those blocking choices and whatever. But I, I do think that the prop and set designers and builders like I, I wrote down theater like just like you said mm-hmm. you know it feels like theater they deserve a lot of the credit for why this movie stands the test of time as far as imagery and sequences because yeah. you know sure the look of it is certainly iconic and would go on to be replicated many many times um you know the 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 look is iconic and and uh and you know i think speaks volumes to the talent involved like we talked about with the the set design. I did find it interesting in the same way the theater kind of dialogue that's in there has not stood the test of time. Right. Such as in aforementioned graveyard scene when uh, Frankenstein finds, uh, or they, they, I'm sorry, it's not the graveyard scene, but it's very close to that where they find the guy on the gallows that's been hung and Frankenstein pulls out a knife and hands it to his henchman, Fritz, and, and that's not good enough. He says, here's a knife. Like, yes, yeah. we we know. We can see it. Thank you. And then it doesn't stop there. Fritz goes and cuts the guy down. And then Fritz says, here's the knife. And then you hear something <laughs> go clunk. And then he says, here I come. Yes. And he's coming down. Like, it's just, you know, it's it's something that would make a lot more sense to me if you were sitting 200 feet away in a theater. Yeah. But it, it it's 
it's so inessential like to the it story. belongs on a title card in a silent movie because it's just like exposition yes. being fed to you that isn't really right. that important anyway but uh yeah i think um you know what we're trying to do is catch stuff beyond just the aesthetics certainly as the aesthetics are worth mentioning um but early on uh, you know, the fact that they they make a distinction between, you know, normal brain and abnormal brain. And then there's this really ham fisted yeah. line, right? Like this is the brain of a criminal and drawing. <laughs> right. So obviously they're trying to make a, a, a big point to say, like, the reason Frankenstein's monster is going to be screwed up in some way is because th- his brain came from a criminal. We don't even, Criminal brain. We don't even know what that criminal did. He could have been like, he could have stolen some potatoes or something. <laughs> like, it doesn't say he was a murderer. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, what do you find in the in the early kind of sequences or sections? What what do you see as them trying maybe desperately to lay some some meaningful groundwork? Yeah, it's confusing because in one sense this is, you know, Optimus Prime in 1930, but it is, uh, there's also these weird attempts at, like, philosophy and theology even. You know, the guy in the curtain, he he comes out and he says, uh, I'm sorry, he's not in a curtain, okay, he comes from behind a curtain. And that's that's Edward Van Sloan who plays Dr. Waldman. I didn't realize that till the end. Okay, okay. And so he says uh, something like uh, uh, he tries to make a man in his own image, you yeah. know, which is very, it sounds very biblical, um, you know. And, and uh, but then he says, you know, something about, but he, he does it without God. Right. So you get this, this I mean, that's, that's a pretty, you think you're going to have a movie that maybe has something kind of serious to say. Mm-hmm. And to this movie's credit, it's not all just like, you know, oh, here comes a monster, let's hide. It tries. Uh, it tries it. from time to time. Yeah, right. But but it's also um, but be, you know he so he's got that line in that intro. But then, like I mentioned, it's kind of also like an antique circus. You know, behold the elephant man, if right. you dare, mm-hmm. kind of a thing. Um, and and so the brain is another example. I think where you know the the conversely the brain that the inept uh, help drops when he's trying to steal it for Doctor Frankenstein mm-hmm. um, is supposed to be this specimen of the finest brain we've ever seen you know for also undisclosed reasons um and the criminal brain is is definitely inferior so there's it it's not i i don't feel like that's that really has anything to do with the kind of really watered down lukewarm theology or whatever that was kind of introduced in the beginning but it does seem to indicate that people have value based on uh, what they do. Yeah. And and if you are a criminal, then you are a, are a drain on society, mm-hmm. and you are um, apparently worthy for having medical experiments um, done on you. Um, and, and so what's interesting is that all of Frankenstein's, um, you know, the parts of the people or whatever that he's getting, we, we don't know the circumstances for the first grave that he robs, you know, why that person died and, and were they a common criminal or a fine specimen. But we also see him, you know, again, cutting down people from the gallows. So Frankenstein, if there's any hope that Frankenstein is going to turn out well, um, it's kind of the movie is indicating that, that Frankenstein is kind of uh, sabotaging himself mm-hmm. um, almost purposefully, which I found really bizarre. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I also found it kind of funny that they're also talking about the, uh, you know, we still hear things about this today, especially as it uh, um, as it relates to, like, 
should should children, you know, of a certain age or teenagers, do, do they have the mental capacity to commit crimes or things? And what what a lot of that kind of scientific discussion that I've read or heard about has to do with the frontal lobe, right? And is that developed? And that's exactly what Doctor uh, Doctor what's his name Waldman says Waldman, to yeah. Doctor Frankenstein. Yeah, he talks about the scarcity of convolutions on the frontal lobe. Like, well, yeah, obviously, it must be a real idiot then, right. you know. Um, and and so I I don't know. It's just it it. It's it's kind of frustrating to me to be frank with you because it doesn't really land anywhere solid. Yeah, it doesn't. It goes to the trouble to kind of set these things up, but they're really just set up as like hey, we got to have them talk about something else for a couple more lines right. is what it feels like, and it never comes back. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think it comes from this sort of stuck place, which is you know the novel, but by extension the film. This story is considered one of the first true science fiction films. Certainly there were stories around the same time uh, as Frankenstein. But some people argue this is the earliest science fiction novel because what is the setup, right? Most of the time what we're used to in Greek mythology or fables or any story like that, it's there's something fantastical or spiritual going on right if there's a monster it's a spirit or it's uh possessed or you know Mm. there's something there's a spiritual grounding there and this story originally and it still it it comes through in that science speak you know there's nothing like that here this is a man who is you know he's in the science world he believes he's a scientific solution to bringing about life that that spirituality that 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 we find in the dialogue and whatever it it just lands like a wet towel because the two things don't really mix you know like or they don't mix well enough to work yeah. you know yeah um so there are moments that if the, this is i think my main contention that i'll get to by the end there are moments that like if that was the whole movie or if the movie centered around those ideas uh, it would be a lot more compelling. And I don't think because like I'm not opposed to science fiction or a science-based story kind of being the motor that drives the thing, but because it's trying to do both things at the same time, it doesn't really do either of them that well. Um, the earliest example um, of censorship, which is something that we'll, we'll come back to time and time again with this movie, because there's a, it's not like they cut out 40 minutes of it or anything crazy like that, right. like that Italian version. Um, but it, it has some key moments that censorship played a role in that I think inform character, which is really interesting. The first thing that you'll notice if you do any research on the censorship of this film was that after its initial release, I think before its distribution in some states, because this is pre-MPAA, uh, this is pre-code, the Hayes Code, which basically was like... The, the MPAA, but a little bit more Wild Wild West where they had even more control and it was a little bit state by state based on, you know, those kinds of rules and regulations. But is the sequence when he brings the creature to life, um, he, you know, gets the gurney down from, from the ceiling and the hand moves and he says, it's alive, it's alive, which everybody's super familiar with. The next line is he says, um, in the name of God, now I know what it feels like to be God. That yeah. entire line of dialogue is cut in 1931 because people were like that is that's right too blasphemous um but i look at that and i'm like well the one of the most interesting things about this is the fact that he's struggling with wanting to play god and seeing how that turns out you know um so that changes the the complexion of that character a little bit 
Um, I do think um, it's worth noting that I think Colin Clive is very good in this, um, especially compared mm-hmm. to some of his counterparts. He's got um, he's got a theatrical presence, but he he has really good um, st- like strong you know scary when he needs to be a little scary. Uh, but just really committed to all of this, like he sells it. He, he he sells the melodrama of it and the kind of closer moments. I think as well as somebody somebody really can. He's got good um, like pauses in his delivery. He 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 makes proximity a thing where he like gets really close to people when he's trying to be compelling. Uh, so that feels like I'm sure I didn't look this up, but he has to have been a stage actor. You can almost like yeah feel it yeah. coming right through the screen. Yeah, I feel like everyone, but, uh, you know, I, I don't have nearly as many issues with his acting as the vast majority of the rest of the cast. But to me, it felt like everyone except for Boris Karloff and the guy that plays Daddy Frankenstein or Baron Frankenstein, uh, everyone else feels like they're acting. Uh, yeah. And, and they're acting very hard, um, you know, and so there's no there's no sense of in, I, I, maybe it's part of the I don't know how many of those people maybe came from the stage, too, or from. You know, Silent obviously films, a different era yeah. of, of filmmaking. Um, but it is really, it, it's possibly a, a directorial problem, too. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure the problem is kind of multifaceted. But it was uh, kind of shocking to me how, how by today's standards, at least, how bad some of the acting is, how wooden, or just how, um, you know, what's the, uh, the, do you know the actress that plays Elizabeth? Um, I, I don't have her name it, in front of me. I'll find it. Okay, and in the the amount of expression that her her eyebrows do more work than she does, I yeah. think, to to try to deliver dialogue, um, and and so it comes across everything that most most characters say is just very perfunctory. It's very much here's a knife. Um, and <laughs> yeah, so, that's, that's the theme of the movie. Here's a knife. Here's a knife. Yeah, that was the subtitle. Yes. Um. It and so it just feels it it gives it a very tepid. Uh, aftertaste, really. Sure. Um, because again, like I think you and I both found a couple different, not even scenes, but more like sequences or, or short clips, kind of interesting or moving, or like or like Frankenstein's line about being God. Okay, that's interesting. Where can we go with that? And the answer to those questions is generally nowhere. Yeah, um, nowhere fast. Which is is bizarre to me. May um, Clark, May Clark as a. Li- uh, as Elizabeth Lavenza. That's the eyebrow lady. <laughs> That's the eyebrow lady. Yeah. And she puts those eyebrows to work. And her eyes are always gazing heavenward, yes. looking for the answers. I'm looking up right now, but this is a podcast. Yes. So you can't yes. see that. She's wistful um, and that's it. I think we, we mentioned this before that started, but like she plays one emotion and that is wistful. And it's pretty much <laughs> one note the whole time. Uh I so Lest anyone think all we're going to do is rag on this movie, I uh, I want to highlight some things that I thought were were well done, good do. within the the bulk of the thing. I really like a few of the cinematography choices throughout. Most of it is a, a little on the perfunctory side. I think again, the the goal here was to capture the scale and the scope and really the surroundings. It's not really let's yeah. put this fascinating character in the, in an interesting place in the frame. But one example of that, a, a nice artistic flourish is. There's a really good shot where Waldman and uh, Dr. Frankenstein are trying to find Fritz uh, because he's made a horrible noise. And they run and they open a door and it's a long shot where they walk in and you just see Fritz hanging there on the side. And they just sort of 
walk in and look at him. Uh, it's a really good way of, of, of establishing some kind of foreboding. What is this creature capable of? That's a pretty looking shot. I remember that. Um, I do think there's, there's, there's a couple points where they try to bring class right into the conversation. The dad, okay, before we go on to more characters, is this one of the earliest examples of an unfortunate trend in American cinema (laughs) where they are fully German in Germany? This is a German story and film, Mm -hmm. you know? Yes. Everybody just sounds bizarrely accented. Like most of them are doing like a pseudo British affectation, sort of like a right. we transatlantic we, thing. Yeah, like we did Shakespeare in theater, so this is this is how you bring seriousness. But then like Dr. Waldman has a fully German accent, but he's speaking English. The dad right. is like he's like way British, you know, he's like, well, right. I'm not sure what we're going to do about that. <laughs> but you know, it's like it's very confused, and every every once in a while, it really sticks out. It's like I am Baron von Frankenstein, and it's like you can't say Baron yeah. von Frankenstein. Uh, listen here, yeah. Oh, I'm Baron von Frankenstein. Yeah, and he's, no, I, I, it's very and, weird. And I think it it um, this movie maybe was. I don't think it was made for this reason, right? But it it kind of serves as a test. Like, okay, how how much do Americans care about this? Right. You know? And so I don't know because I don't speak all the languages of the world how how America you know if a story is set in America how that's portrayed in in that nation's cinema but it it is a problem that still exists today oh my gosh. even though uh you know we're we we are so much more um able to accomplish kind of amazing feats in movies like think about um Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ mm-hmm. filmed all in Aramaic a dead uh, language and, uh, right and and I mean it's incredible and to me that kind of that especially sets the bar <laughs> for the era we live in. Sure. Um, as far as what's capable of being accomplished and how beautiful that can be and how much more meaningful and serious and and involved it can be. But but yet then we have you know a couple years later you get Tom Cruise and Valkyrie. That's what I was going to bring up. Playing you know oh yeah we're gonna kill hitler like it's not a mission impossible movie tom i don't buy it and i remember specifically when that movie came out they were doing press junkets and interviews and they it was the laziest answer i've ever heard for a question like this it was like so it's interesting that you all chose to just you know retain your your natural accents nobody's doing a german accent and literally like the director the actors their answer was like yeah we felt like instead of everybody trying to do a German accent and being bad at it, essentially, we just thought we'd do our own accents and people would get used to it. It's like, what the heck <laughs> is like? That's the wor- we that's that's we were artistically lazy, essentially. Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, imagine if they said the same thing about costumes. Hey, we see you guys are doing this World War Two period piece, right. but you're all in jeans and in Tommy Hilfiger shirts. What's that all about? <laughs> well, we just thought people would get used to it. Yeah. You know, like uh, no, we can't. You can't get used to it, and yeah. and I think that's to those. Including this movie, it's to the because uh, honestly, Travis, watching this movie, I couldn't, I I wasn't sure until we got to a certain place, and I think it was seriously when I saw the men dancing in lederhosen at the wedding, yeah. where I was like, what? Where is this happening? Yeah, I couldn't figure out based on the dr- I I didn't know what year it was. Yeah, I didn't know what country it was. I didn't know what time it was. I didn't know where I was. Um, and so some of those issues have to do with my mental sanity yes. and they're not all related to the movie, 
but uh yeah it was not not i i don't think it was implicitly explicitly obvious um yeah. where where this movie was until you know the germans were dancing yeah i mean and the, somebody was called the burgermeister there that we go was a giveaway i looked at <laughs> yeah thanks to this movie i know what a burgermeister is and uh that's uh that's really that's one of the most uh, important me. things I'm, can you can you please tell us what a burgermeister is uh, it's the mayor of a, of a Dutch, Flemish, German, Austrian, or Swiss town. So there you oh, go. Yeah. That's very good. Thank you. You're Danke. Welcome. Thank you. And, okay. uh, uh, so anyway, uh, this all started because I, I couldn't let that point just sit there, but they do try to bring class into it occasionally. The, the dad right. is certainly portrayed and pictured as a, uh, you know, aristocratic, wealthy, literally monocle-wearing, you know, stuffy kind of <laughs> right. drinking right. guy. But he has this line where at one point he says, give the servants some champagne. This stuff would be wasted on them. Uh, I wrote the same thing down. Yeah. So there's this weird... There in, I'm sorry if I interrupted you. I'm just so excited that we wrote down the same line. It's um, really exciting. It, it, it's It's like... Okay, so this movie acknowledges there's some kind of class problems because it doesn't say that in a way to to glorify that or be like, haha, get those stupid servants, you know. It's it's in a way where like the the help is right there, you know. Right. Um. And and they get their champagne and they're not afforded grandma's nice wine or great grandma's wine or whatever. But which is why do they keep bringing that? That is a point that like the dad brings that up like four times. It's like yeah, this it's is, the last shot in the movie yeah, is him drinking. The wine. Oh my gosh, we'll talk about that at the end. That's okay. ridiculous. Yeah. All right, but but I just wanted to yeah kind of echo your well I'm not echoing am I because I interrupted your sentiments. No, you're good. Um, um, but you know the so so again the movie kind of like with the God line. I know what it's like to be God. Now it's like okay, there's some issue potentially interesting issues to talk about class and you know uh sensitivity or insensitivity to those issues and and nope we're just gonna just gonna throw a line out there and all right time to move on now where's yeah, frankenstein's it's, monster it's, it pays some lip service to seriousness and it really just whiffs it and just kind of in the in the name of i think mass appeal right it moves yes. on from those things very quickly and therefore you're left with like if you're if you're not just trying to watch it for spectacle you're you're like you're, you're left empty-handed in a lot of ways right. Um, right but let's talk about a couple moments where there there is some substance to be found and they're, they're a little few and far between but they're there if you look for them with your microscope yeah. uh i do think the with character uh, with your monocle exactly the character of fritz um it has more to say uh, substantively uh, with the way that they use him than I think yeah. Frankenstein or Dr. Waldman or in some ways the creature, the monster. Uh, he has, a, a, you know, a patheticness and a cruelty about him mm -hmm. that is interesting. And another point of censorship, which is in that sequence where he's whipping the monster essentially just to torture him because he's chained up. It's, I guess they're trying to quiet him down, but he he's whipping him. Doctor Frankenstein comes in and he says, "Stop! You're going to have the whole uh, you know the whole village will be after us or whatever." And then he leaves, and then he takes the torch and he tortures him some more. Um, there's a close up there of the monster's face and his fear of the fire, uh, and it just drives home the point that like Fritz is not just trying to do his job; he's being wicked, you know, in this moment. Yeah. Um, and then that's going to be contrasted later with 
the monster's interaction with with the girl by the water. Mm. Um, yeah. So I really think uh, between those two scenes, those are the ones that I walk away with like, hmm, there might be something there to mull, but they don't do a lot with it. Um, the, the That next scene, I think we'll probably talk about more than anything because it's yeah the most interesting thing in the film in a lot of ways. And in, in right before we get there, just to kind of in that same time frame of, of Fritz, you know, when I was watching, I was kind of wondering out loud sometimes, um, what, why does this brilliant scientist, albeit an unethical one, have such a bumbling henchman? Yeah. But I get that his, his, you know, this is not a movie made for with necessarily any kind of realism in mind. Um, and, and so I get that his, his role is more um, figurative or metaphorical, you know. Right. And, and as Mrs. Justin, again, there she is, uh, sagely pointed out, um, I, I think that, and what I agree with her in, is that he is he is an outcast. He's a reject from society. He is at the bottom of the barrel, and he's finally found something he thinks he can have power over. Yes. Something that is less than him. And so, unfortunately, that I, I think that's really true, and that's very human. But as soon as we start to examine that, uh, Fritz is dead. Yeah. And so we have to move on. But in, in that same kind of setting, one thing that I found really interesting is when Franken, Dr. Frankenstein, you know, does something to the windmill, opens a window or something, or, or, you know, like a skylight kind of, a windmill's version of a skylight. Yes. And Frankenstein's monster reaches up with outstretched hands to the light. Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh my gosh. And then the, and then he's like, you know, well, close it up, right? And so, and then the, the monster's just left like back in the darkness. And I thought, wow, this is really on the nose. Uh, here we are, you have uh, someone reaching for the light, but shut out and told to sit in darkness. Mm-hmm. I mean, he literally tells him to sit down. Yeah. Uh, and I thought, oh my goodness, this is, you know, this is going to be a little too... Again, too on the nose, but but it's not because we never come back to that, right? Um, but I think that is really it, it is it's a really interesting point to try to make about how doing such things to people, showing them light, giving them you know just just the knowledge of opportunity to 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 whatever you want to call it, live successfully or be free or or do something or just experience the world in a positive way, yeah. And install and instead being told or or forced to live, you know, so to speak, on the other side of the tracks, uh, or in Frankenstein's case, in the dungeon of a windmill. Mm-hmm. Well, of course, that's going to breed evil. That's going to breed hate. You know, that's going to uh, not lead to anything good. Yeah. But again, I, I I don't know that the audience is really given. I mean, it's like what what is that scene? Like ten seconds. Yeah. So you really have to, like you said, you really got to get your monocle out and, yeah. and work for this stuff. Two monocles stacked on top of each other, and uh, yeah, it's always more effective. That's how that's how you see the small things. Uh, yeah, I agree. Uh, everything that feels like it's on the verge of really saying something is sort of just gone in the blink of an eye, um, and that draws a pretty straight line for us to uh, the sequence at the edge of the water. You know, the creature mm. escapes, yeah. and his interaction with the girl at the edge of the water is the most interesting thing in the movie for me. Yes, um, me too. Boris Karloff turns in a very good, you know, nonverbal essentially mm-hmm. performance. Um, that's that's a super challenging thing to do. Uh, especially in the context of, you know, a ridiculous costume and big spectacle mm-hmm. sets and all that. Like he, especially in that scene with the little girl, just you see her, you know, 
trying to do her best to not judge this person she doesn't know uh, and showing him kindness and, and including mm-hmm. him in her life. And then um, and, and he tries to do what he thinks is logical and it ends up being a tragic thing. That, another, this is the most like classic example of uh, censorship from this movie because because of the way that scene ends, it was completely cut down. And this is weird because the way it was cut down I think makes it more sinister than it, it turns out in the versions we can now see, which is the full scene. The cut yeah. version stops that sequence at the moment that he reaches his arms out to the little girl and he sees the flower, he throws it, he sees that it floats on top of the water and then he starts to reach out to her and not not in an evil way, but like, in a, oh, okay, so the next thing we should do is this, right? And they cut right there. And they go right. to the next sequence. So you you see him reaching for this girl and then they cut away. You don't know what happens except for that they say later that she drowned. So to me, not seeing him be shocked and surprised by the fact that she didn't float and then running into the weeds and, and dealing with that like, you know, very like, uh, uh, you know, basic guilt that he's de- yeah. dealing with like that, that is, that's what sympathizes him and makes him have some nuance so uh, thank goodness we have the restored version now, but that 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 interaction with the little girl, I mean, is is actually affecting. And as a sequence, um, that's one of the things I would pull and you know put on my shelf to remember this movie by. What do you have to say about that sequence? Yeah, no, that is frankly one of the two things that I that stuck with me since I you know first saw it when I was six was that that whole sequence was kind of preserved in memory of the pick and the flowers and. I guess I was fortunate enough in, in whatever uh, decade that was with fun VHS to, to have an uncensored version. Right. Um, 1987 is when that scene was restored. So like the, okay. tape, the tape versions, which is crazy to think about. For 50 years, if you watch yeah. this movie, which to be frank, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, nobody was watching this unless it was some re-release in theaters because people didn't own movies. But right. when you know v, the VHS revolution happened... It was like right in 87, that version of it, which could be the version you watched if you watched it when you were, you know, a youngin and it was a, a few years old VHS tape. That's when it was restored. Right. Yeah. And and so that that did it's a powerful scene. It's it, it works, too. Um, and you get, you know, as as deep as that movie is going to go is is in that scene, mm-hmm. I think. Um, and. And uh, yeah, I, I couldn't, I, I don't want to just reiterate because that would be boring. But yeah, I, I am very impressed by by Mr. Boris Karloff's uh, turn as an actor in that scene. And, you know, even going back to what you said about him uh, and, and the censorship in the scene with Fritz torturing him, you know, he really delivers a lot of emotional resonance by, by doing very, I, I think maybe it's partly because he's not given a lot to do even yeah. though he's the monster you know he's just not asked to it's like okay just move around a little funny here you know he doesn't have a lot of like, agency he's being acted upon right. and he's reacting a lot yeah right and but the way that he is able to react as an actor um it man just him kind of opening his mouth and giving those very sad moans or cries or whatever um it's really it's very troubling yeah. i think because you you relate to him, I think, more as a as a child, or or like you know, just kind of an innocent, yeah. uh, like a like the bull in the china shop. Like he doesn't he he doesn't get it. Yeah, um, he, it, you know what it reminded me of, Justin, was when we went and saw Jordan Peele's Us, 
We were sitting yes. in a very rowdy audience for that movie. We liked it right. uh, quite a right. bit, actually. But there were some audience reactions yeah. that were annoying. Like you get the, you get a crowd every once in a while in a theater. <laughs> Remember those things called theaters where you could go and watch a movie? Um, Sounds familiar. Yeah. Uh, they they did not take to the uh, uh, like caveman kind of uh, uh, like you know the creatures in that movie they don't have they have a verbal way of speaking but it's right. very like prehistoric it's it's yeah. it's weird and we were watching it now I was my skin was crawling because I feel like it was done in a way that like it's supposed to unsettle you it's not supposed to yes. be like whoa they're making funny noises and I immediately thought of that when I was watching this because mm. I, I see a little bit of that. Um, lifted in not a bad way like you know it's yeah. almost like you said you remember how you know boris karloff verbalized his and 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 gave that sort of direction but i yeah i do i agree i think that works really well too i think coming off of that scene um maybe the best imagery and emotional mm-hmm. sequence is the father walking through you know the t- kind of town square where the party for the wedding is going on and um he has his dead daughter in his arms and there's this just dancing and music and drinking beer. And he's walking through the crowds. And as soon as he passes by people, you see them stop and look and stop. And it's sort of this slow motion domino effect. And that was masterfully done. I mean, he's really good, the dad, as the actor. But the way it's shot is just a slow tracking shot following him. Mm-hmm. Uh, another moment yeah. where I was like, okay, this is a sequence that needs to go in the archives. Th- this is the reason, right? As we're getting to the end of our what's it saying section this is this is the stuff that the movie deserves to be remembered for the spectacle the scope mm-hmm. the fact that it is a, a literary adaptation albeit a clunky one and in, in many ways um but that's a sequence that I'll remember you know um absolutely and I will also remember how disappointed I was with what they did with the sequence which uh I think in a different director's hands the crowd would not be so boisterous, or at least not not as one man would they all be shouting and screaming um, as they go to the Burgermeister. Yes. But uh, that's the choice that's made, and, and so you have this, I agree with you, it is, it's the most moving image in the movie, I think, unless we want to talk about the kind of the climax of the movie. Sure, too. let's get there. Um, but, uh, but just real quick, just to wrap that up, um, when he delivers, so to speak, his daughter to the Burgermeister, the the instead of you know there being kind of any any reflection or like what do we do as a community about this, it just immediately moves on to like okay we got to wrap this movie up, let's get to the next thing. Mm-hmm. What happened? She drowned. She was murdered. Let's go find the monster. Right. You know, and it's like well how are you even gonna do? It doesn't make sense. There's not a lot of uh, in- investigation, so to speak, or questioning that happens. It just seems as a given, like, the audience knows that they need to go find the monster. Right. So we're not going to make it hard for these people to figure out. They're just going to go find the monster. Yeah. If We have to go back to M here. We have to. Because dead kid, right? A child yes. murder. Uh, a community reacting. This movie does what M did in about, like, 10 minutes, right? And with, right. like four percent of the thought put into it you know what i'm saying like m yes. m asks that question from the beginning to the end what do we do with this problem you know it's right. not exactly the same kind of a, a perpetrator but as a community reacting to a tragedy that is you know unthinkable in a lot of ways um this is so like this is the this is the the meat-headed just really dumbed down version of it it's like get the guy 
And I feel like that's a result of an overarching problem, which seems like the audience has to realize what's happening before the characters in the movie do. Yeah. So th- therefore, the you know here's the knife kind of dialogue, or or when any character makes some kind of blood curdling scream instead of you know because you and I are already processing okay that that's they're in the windmill, mm-hmm. uh, the doctors are together, only Fritz and the monster are there. That sounds like Fritz screaming. No, they don't just go like oh crap, Fritz is in trouble. There's this what's that? Yeah. Do you hear that? Do you hear something in the background? Ah my gosh, he's murdering me. You know yeah. oh yeah. what what could that be? Doctor, it's Fritz. And then they mobilize, you know, and it's just, it's an odd use of screen time. It's the same thing with Dr. Frankenstein later, right? Like he's, he's caught up with the monster and he's help me, help me. And everyone's like, it's Dr. Frankenstein. Like we, we know everybody, (laughs) we get it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Agreed. It's, it's, it, it treats the audience as far less intelligent than something other than, you know, like, like a movie like like M that's impossible not to refer back to because of some overlap here. I think sure. that that I think unless you want to uh, pick anything else out, I'm, that covers what this movie feels like and looks like and 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 says. Um, I would say uh, just as one final note in this section, it's it's kind of boring. Like the middle third yeah. of this movie, it just kind of meanders. Uh, they don't do a lot in regards to pacing, and we can talk about that when it comes to the ending as well. Let's um let's wrap it up, man. Let's get to our summative thoughts. What do you say? Let's start hiking up Everest. Let's do it. Okay, so final thoughts here. Um neither of us were blown away by this. Um I think it delivers sort of what it attends to at times but it doesn't intend on delivering much more than being a popcorn mm. flick um I, yeah before we give our final final thoughts each of us i do think it's worth um touching on just a couple things that the novel does that the movie doesn't because you know okay we, we we spoke this is an adaptation of an adaptation essentially you know this play script became a film script the play script was based off the novel but let me give you a couple things because um, neither of us have read Mary Shelley's Frankenstein at any point recently or are super familiar with it. So I did some Spark Notes esque research to see what are the main differences. And this is what I came up with. First of all, um, Mary Shelley wrote this, uh, started writing this at 18, which is really impressive. Um, it was published in 1818, um, argued as the first true science fiction story. Um, but in the novel, some plot point differences. Okay. The creature is articulate he learns to Mm. speak and read um he terrifies a family that he's uh he kind of is attempting to befriend and because they react that way even though he has good intentions he that's when he vows to have revenge on his creator because it's like he sees his Mm. reflection he sees i am hideous how could anybody take me as anything but a monster and that's what causes his character turn to say i need to you know destroy Dr. Frankenstein. First of all, that is a million times more interesting than what we see. But it goes on to um, the the story. Then goes on the the creature requests a, a mate and vows. You know, he wants a partner. So he says, "You need to make me a wife." Essentially, and he vows, "You know, if you do this for me, I'll leave you alone." Um, and then the ending. What, all of that stuff is a lot more uh, interesting and humanizing and nuanced than what we get in the movie. But the ending is what really, like, I wish I could see this. 
Um, and you know what? There's like a billion film versions of this. Somebody somewhere might do this. I know there's a, a Kenneth Branagh uh, adaptation of this with Robert De Niro as the Frankenstein monster, which Why sounds not? sounds wild. Uh, but um, the ending, Victor's ship, Dr. Frankenstein's ship, is caught in pack ice. The creature is supposedly missing at this point. Victor dies, um, and he is adamant to his death that the creature must be destroyed. The creature is found on the ship as like a stowaway almost, and the captain, who's like the last one left, he assumes the creature must be at peace now because Dr. Frankenstein's dead, but the, the creature isn't. He is he is torn apart by the fact that his creator is is killed, and he vows that he must be destroyed himself, and he drifts away on an ice raft never to be seen again. And so, I don't know, I think the thing wow. we talked about earlier is like, the the novel obviously gives the char- the character of the creature far more agency, and I mm-hmm. I think that is what's missing here in, in in large part. My summative review of this is um, it's a popcorn movie from 1931, and for it being that, it is visually impressive. Uh, you can see the money on screen. There are a couple good performances to be had here. I think between. Um, the, the fellow who plays Dr. Frankenstein, uh, 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 Colin Clive, and Boris Karloff himself. Other than that, uh, we always try to get to rewatchability. Like, how often would I rewatch this? Honestly, I would not watch the rest of this. I, I, I don't think I'll ever watch this again in its totality because yeah. I think the only thing you need to see uh, are the sequences that you can pull up on on YouTube or wherever else and say, like, oh, wow, that flower sequence is really interesting or the windmill sequence is really interesting except we forgot to mention holy cow that is the worst dummy oh it is i was laughing literally out loud yeah when he throws the dummy off the top of the 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 the, uh, windmill and it like hits the blade and then it lands Mm -hmm. on the ground it's the worst looking dummy i'm sorry even for 1931 i was like how did that make it right and that is i think that is sort of emblematic right in the Mm -hmm. peak moment of this movie the thing that should be the most substantive and moving is it's just gutted because it's spectacle and it's it 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 does feel a little staged and um, watch the good sequences. I don't really think you need to spend time on your master's thesis for 1931's Frankenstein. How about you? Yeah, probably probably agree with you there. And uh, to follow up on that dummy, it really shocking to me because I didn't remember every point of this movie. That uh, that a hundred and you know seventy pound man could be thrown from a height of seventy feet or so, land on the blade of a windmill, <laughs> so that his spine is in line with it and his legs overlap each side of the blade. He crumples like as, a pretzel around that thing. It's ridiculous. And, and then as the blade moves downward, it drops him even further to the ground. He falls on his back, and I thought that he's just dead, obviously. But no, he's recovering fine by the end of the movie. And uh, frankly, I feel like that was the one time... Because you buy into a monster movie like this, there's going to be some kind of sci-fi or fantasy elements. We're creating... This guy's creating a monster from body parts, right? Right. So you know you have to suspend your disbelief in that way. But to to watch Dr. Frankenstein be thrown from such a height and (laughs) brutalized by inanimate objects and then recover by the end of the movie, I found that a lot more offensive to my... Uh, sense of rationality yeah, than for most sure. of the rest of the movie. Um, yeah, to me, the um, the the only other scene that I could remember from being a, a little Justin 
was Frankenstein burning in the in the windmill. Mm-hmm. And uh, again, Boris Karloff. I mean, he's not you know. Not trying to say this is some kind of A-list performance or something, but it's very—it's still very sad um, because here's this monster uh, who, you know, uh, yes, accidentally kills this little girl, mm-hmm. um, and certainly something needs to be done. But the villagers—they just act like a mob, you yeah. know. And there's no—what does the burgermeister say? Like, bring him alive if you can, but get him. Yeah. You know, it's just this very like. This is just how we do it out here in Germany. I don't know why they use that accent in that part of Germany. It is like the film speaking to us directly. It's like, bring us some substance, but if you can't do that, just bring us something. Yeah, no, I think that's fair. Um, And so, you know, walking away this time, I, I am... I have a couple more things to hang on to, some of the the points we talked about, which I'm not going to reiterate, but... Um, th- there are there are parts of this movie that are worthwhile. This is not a waste of time. And yeah, like you said, if you're a student of film or cinema, or you just want to appreciate, you know, maybe you've heard people talk about how this is a classic or whatever. It can be kind of a fun endeavor, I think, to evaluate these things that are supposedly classic uh, or or amazing, even like uh, books that are supposedly you know part of high literature evaluating them for yourself sometimes you're going to come across uh, come away with a much different opinion and so um i i would agree with you that this is uh informative and 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 noteworthy for some of the things that it does mostly related to scale and scope but as it actually comes to telling a story and and acting as a movie uh, it it doesn't really know what it wants to be, and so it fails to be anything ultimately that has great meaning or importance. Mm-hmm. And that is kind of indicated in the very last scene, where uh, you know father father of young Doctor Frankenstein is talking about the wine again. Oh my gosh! And and what's so <laughs> freaking weird is the help brings him the wine. Right. The help that has no capacity to under that it would be wasted on them brings him the wine. So again, it's like. Well, this is really interesting. What is this movie trying to say? And then he takes a swig of it, and the movie's over. That's and, it. <laughs> and so, my my answer to that question is, I I don't know. I I really truly don't know <laughs> what this movie is trying to say. It 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 offers some interesting theol. It would be like if you took a a book by Freud or Nietzsche or someone that's a philosopher and not German. And just tore out a couple sentences from just one of their books. You yeah. know, just you took a page, you don't even tear out the page, you just tear out a couple sentences and then have somebody read that and then immediately start talking about something else. That's mm-hmm. what this movie feels like to me. It's just it's it's so disjointed and so uh in terms of, you know, the ultimate question, what is it saying? Um yes, it tells a kind of coherent plot, but as far as a message or um an overarching theme it's it's really not there for me mm-hmm. um the theme overarching is like do you want to refill on your popcorn mm-hmm. um and do you want to buy a ticket for the next matinee that's it yeah and and there would be a lot more matinees because this uh you know n- no shortage of sequels remakes uh, yeah. this is a franchise you know franchise building movie this became uh, a, a reoccurring thing, you know. There were Bela Lugosi, uh, not Bela Lugosi, excuse me, Boris Karloff sequels. There were, mm-hmm. you know, crossovers with Abbott and Costello, Frankenstein meets the Wolfman. Uh, this went, man, like people people yep. ate it up, and I think that 
that just says something about you know what audiences uh, maybe want. Um, but I, I don't think anybody's gonna walk away from this with anything other than well, the story is trying to say something really amazing. Well, really, the novel is the movie. Yes. isn't really. So, what would you? How often would you rewatch this? Oh yes, that that question. Uh, I, yeah, like you, I probably wouldn't. Um, you know, I if if a if one of my kids or um, you know, somebody was really, really keen on watching it for some reason and had never experienced it. You know, I would, I would gladly sit down and, and watch it again. But, but like you, I'm probably gonna laugh when, when the Doctor Frankenstein gets thrown on the windmill. Yeah, and not be, uh, not be overly um, sympathetic to to the movie as a whole. It, it is interesting, and so yeah, like you, I don't want uh, listeners to think that, boy, this is just a pile of garbage. Don't waste your time. Mm-hmm. Um, it. No, it's it's it doesn't reach for the same things as as M. Like I think we made pretty clear, um, but yeah, it does have historical significance, and I think more more as something kind of culturally significant, or as kind of the genesis of you know what started kind of this monster madness. Or yeah. What was at the beginning? Everyone should watch. Everyone should watch it once. That's yeah. That's my feelings on and, it, and that's probably all you'll need. All right, Justin, I think that's enough of the creature for today. Uh, I enjoyed talking about Frankenstein. How about you? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I'm looking forward to next week. I think we're talking about It Happened One Night. Is that right? That's right. It's an early Frank Capra film. It stars Clark Gable, Claudette Colbert. Made a bunch of money and spawned another genre, um, the romantic comedy genre. So um, I'm excited about that. We hope you will join us again. And we will see you next week. Bye. Bye-bye. Let the movie speak. Hey, since you're still here and still listening, thank you, by the way, we'd like to ask an additional favor of you. We have social media. It's a thing on the internet. And all you need to do is find us on Instagram or Twitter or Facebook and like and subscribe. I know this is annoying, but we have to ask you because we want more people to hear the show. In addition to that, if you could rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen, we would greatly appreciate it. See you next week. Bye.